Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today on the wings of Alliance for Natural Health USA, we're returning to Corvallis, Oregon to meet with Dr. Alexander Michaels. We will be picking up on part two with the question and answers about the use of vitamin C, whether oral or intravenous. So welcome back, Alexander. Kate Chen and I did a pharmacokinetic study on uh, an intravenous vitamin C starting at one gram, going up to 100 grams, and we didn't find any toxicity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there, there have been hundreds of grams given day after day. And sometimes you see high oxalate come through mm-hmm. uh, because the vitamin C can break down into oxalates. And so people who have kidney problems uh, like uh, kidney stone formation, you know, a history of kidney stone formation need to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons they're excluded from studies because we don't want to promote any formation of kidney stones. But for most people, it's no harm at all. Um, and I think that the people who have problems with kidney stones actually have something else going on. It's not the vitamin C causing the problem. It's something we don't quite identify going on that's ca- having those oxalate crystals build up. So it's, mm-hmm. you can't really blame the vitamin C for that. It's something else in the body that it's reacting with. Oh, that's great. I, I really like how you said that. And some people worry too that vitamin C can block the absorption of B12 and other B vitamins. Talk about that. I've heard that. That's, that was actually um, early in my research, vitamin C, I, I came across the papers about B12. And it was actually one of the counterpoints uh, that uh, some of the medical professionals had to Linus Pauling's advocacy for large doses. Oh, I didn't C. know that. Yeah, they, they said, oh, it's going to just just destroys the B12 uh, in your body. And, and, and Pauling kind of said, um, I don't see any evidence for that. So <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. But there is the possibility. So if you have large amounts of, of B12 and vitamin C in the same space at the same time, not inside the body, but outside the body, uh, usually in food, or if you take a B12 supplement at the same time you take a vitamin C supplement, it's possible the vitamin C could destroy the B12. But usually that requires some sort of intermediate, which is iron or copper, mm. uh, because that's when vitamin C transforms from a, an antioxidant to kind of a, a pro-oxidant. And you, you're well familiar with that with the intravenous vitamin C. But there's some sort of runaway reaction that can happen in a, a, a piece of food or um, some sort of animal feed. I think is the it originally started in animal feeds, and that vitamin C was reacting with, say, iron or copper, producing superoxide, which then reacted with the B12. Okay, but that's kind of an artificial situation right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once vitamin C gets into your stomach acid it's no longer going to participate in those pro-oxidant reactions. And B12 needs that same stomach acid Mm -hmm. and probably the acid from the vitamin C uh, to associate with intrinsic factor, which promotes its absorption. Mm -hmm. So honestly, when people talk about B12 being an issue with C, I've never seen it. Mm -hmm. I think it was an overblown 
rumor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a way that the medical community was trying to dissuade people from following Lyons <laughs> Taking vitamin really? C, yeah. that toxic vitamin C. Yeah, that toxic vitamin C. So right. what about the sustained release forms of vitamin C? Do you have any opinion on that? No strong opinion. I, I don't see any problem with it in general, but I also haven't seen any benefits to it. There was a, a research article that looked at sustained release, and it turned out that if you did what we call area under the curve analysis, um, where you look at the concentration of vitamin C getting into the bloodstream over time, there was actually there was actually less bioavailable than um, traditional vitamin C. And I couldn't tell you why that was. Um, you would think that a sustained release form would slowly meter out the vitamin C and the, the vitamin C transporters wouldn't get overwhelmed and you'd, you know, more bioavailable. It turned out not to be the case, hmm. but it, that could be a formulation specific issue like the pills. So all of our vitamin C transporters in the body are in the small intestine. And so once it gets into the large intestine, um, you're probably not going to see very much uptake at that point. It'll probably be destroyed by some oxidation processes or the microbes that are in your your large intestine. And so um, the pills may have not dissolved properly by the time they got to the large intestine. And therefore, some of the vitamin C was lost. That's my guess. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the polling therapy of ascorbate plus lysine? I can talk about it a little bit because um, I, I've definitely researched it, but it is not currently a, a therapy that the Lions Pauling Institute um, endorses, mm-hmm. mainly because there's little limited scientific evidence about this combination. So the idea was that um, lipoproteins, uh, which are the foundation, oxidized lipoproteins, which, well, lipoproteins like LDL are in our bodies all the time. Oxidized LDL is the foundation of atherosclerosis. So uh, what Pauling was suggesting was that a certain type of lipoprotein called lipoprotein A could respond to um, vitamin C, you know, vi- the, that high doses or high amounts of vitamin C would protect those lipoproteins from becoming oxidized and maybe reverse some of the oxidation of existing lipoproteins. And lysine and later proline was was kind of suggested as being adjuvant therapies, you know, helping uh, prevent those sticky lipoproteins, the oxidized sticky lipoproteins from sticking in your arteries and and promoting atherosclerosis. The problem is um, there's not a lot of of scientific evidence in people that this happens. (laughs) The evidence that does exist is in animal models to the most for the most part. But I really caution people when they look at animal models for vitamin C, because for most animals, vitamin C is not a vitamin, Mm -hmm. especially mammals, right? So you're looking at a a rat study and rats synthesize their own vitamin C. I mean, this is one of the problems I had in my graduate's career because I had no animal models available to me Mm -hmm. of, of an animal that did not synthesize vitamin C, except for humans. And so what I've been cautioning people uh, who do vitamin C research on animals is that 
even if you wipe out that vitamin C synthesis capacity, which we can do, we have the tools to change the genetics of the animal and there's knockout mice. Yeah. Mark's used those. Mark Levine has used those. Yeah. And so as a lot of other vitamin C research colleagues have used those, um, the problem is the rest of the body is, a, is accustomed to treating vitamin C as something that's always there. Uh-huh. So you've got these genetic markers that have also changed in humans and primates along with the loss of vitamin C. And the, we, you can see this a little bit in guinea pigs and fruit bats, other species that have lost the synthesis capacity. They have adapted to a life where vitamin C comes from the diet only. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be very cautious at interpreting vitamin C supplement studies in those animal models, in the animal models that do synthesize because blood cells, uh, intestinal cells, they're not necessarily thinking of dietary sources as being the source of this vitamin that we need. It can't, from those animals, it was normally coming from the liver. Mm -hmm. So evolution is kind of pushed you know, these synthesizing versus non-synthesizing species in different directions. So so getting back to the, the polling therapy, I, I think we really desperately need someone to be looking at these studies in human beings. But the major funding uh, sources for cardiovascular disease research aren't interested in studying that uh, right now. So you have to go independent at that point. Mm-hmm. It's a long and tricky study to do. So yeah. Um, we don't, and when I say the Lions Pauling Institute doesn't endorse that, we don't stop people from trying it. I mean, there's plenty of success stories that people have had out there, but we can't give you any scientific evidence on why it works or why it might not work or who is it best for. Um, and so we just kind of have to, um, take a neutral point of view and just say, um, you're on your own almost. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have the evidence, you can't really you guide people. There's just no yeah. way. Yeah. So let's stay on this cardiovascular theme. There are some people that are worried that vitamin C will cause hardening of the arteries or that calcification of the arteries. Where did that come from? There was a study that was done, and I believe it was in California. I, I can't remember the, the the exact study off the top of my head, but it actually showed that people were, that were taking vitamin C supplements in that study had narrowing of the arteries compared to groups that were taking a statin. Mm-hmm. They also had a control group. And so what what <laughs> what unfortunately made the headlines was vitamin C is is not good. But what it should have said is vitamin C is not as good as a statin. Um, because the people taking the statin were showing a reversal in the narrowing of the arteries, which is what you expect with a drug uh, where you get the cholesterol under control. Vitamin C was causing some, or not causing, but did not stop the progression of already existing atherosclerosis. And then people who took nothing at all had much worse progression. Um, So uh, if you flipped that data a little bit, you would say, well, vitamin C causes of slowing of the progression, but it doesn't stop and reverse it. That's what a statin can do in some cases, along with all the other side effects of taking a statin, but still you know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of an aside right there. Uh-huh. Um, but 
from a medical perspective, it was just seen as vitamin C is, is uh, promoting a progression. It's not, I don't think it, in the study, I don't think they were showing a promotion. Mm-hmm. They were showing just not a slowing instead of a, a reversal. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was kind of counterbalancing uh, again, Pauling's theories, uh, they were trying to, I mean, I don't know how many knee jerk reactions I've seen out of medical professionals, uh, over the years that are trying to combat something that Linus Pauling said, <laughs> um, oh, I know. but, um, and sometimes they, they come to the conclusion that Pauling was right. So uh-huh. I don't know what to say about that, but I don't think the calcification of arteries is a, is a real concern with vitamin C. I think it was just a limited effect on one study. Mm-hmm. Subsequent studies have shown that vitamin C is actually good for um, vascular tone. So you, you can't really, and, and blood pressure. And so, uh, and of course, oxidation of LDL uh, also, I mean, but do you expect vitamin C to be a miraculous, uh, have a miraculous effect on, on atherosclerosis? I don't. Um, but if someone shows me that in the study someday, I won't, you know, as long as it's a good study, I'll believe it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was involved in the TAC trial, the trial to assess chelation therapy, and everybody focused on the chelation part of that therapy, the EDTA component of the infusion and stopping and reversing cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. And actually what's been lost in all of the, the heat and the smoke is that in the infusate was seven grams of vitamin C and oh, some yeah. other B vitamins and minerals. And really at the end of the day, the people that benefited the most from the uh, chelation therapy infusion were diabetics. Oh, that yes. Were poorly controlled diabetics. And so they launched into a second phase of the TAC trial, which I declined to participate in because I felt like they were going in the wrong direction. But they were focusing on what heavy metals were going to come out in these diabetic patients when they needed to look at the how depleted diabetics are, especially when they're poorly controlled, in micronutrients like vitamin C and B vitamins. So I think the effect, it, maybe there was some effect from the chelation, but I, I think it was the other nutrients in the in the solution. So that's my bias. Yeah, and, and I mean, vitamin C is a remarkable molecule when it comes to um, interactions with heavy metals. I mean, there's a lot of uh, research showing vitamin C can not only help the body clear heavy metals, but limits the toxicity of existing heavy metals. Mm -hmm. And so you can see a lot of benefit just by extra vitamin C, even if you're not budging those heavy metals from certain parts of the body, the the negative effects are diminished. And so, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, you get these studies and they get very narrow tunnel vision and it's just like you were talking about with the atherosclerotic studies. Instead yes. of looking at the the results holistically. And also, I, I mean, I should I always caution people, and we do this uh, when we're talking about on the Micronutrient Information Center when we're presenting all of the evidence uh, on a particular topic. You do have to look at the whole field of study as a whole. I mean, you have to one study does not stand alone in. Uh, on a topic. You have to look at it in comparison to another study or three other studies that were done. 
on the balance, what does it look like vitamin C is doing? And overwhelmingly, it looks like it's protecting arteries uh, more than it's hurting arteries and for various reasons. And I could go into more detail, but really there's just so much evidence that vitamin C is good for your uh, vascular system. Very limited evidence to suggest that it could be bad. And diabetics, I think, is kind of the undiscovered country. Uh, we need more studies of vitamin C in diabetics uh, because a lot of people who have diabetes have very low levels of vitamin C and they could really benefit. That's so true. You know, we have an unpublished study at KU that we did in uncontrolled diabetics giving them intravenous vitamin C and seeing imaging the brain mm -hmm. with a certain uh, NMR type of imaging that can show you the amount of vitamin C and other chemicals in the brain. And what we found was these diabetics don't take up vitamin C. They're competing with all of that glucose. So that oh, transporter yes. at the blood brain barrier isn't taking the vitamin C in the brain. And so they have higher rates of depression and, and other abnormalities, but that feel good effect of vitamin C is so important. That's another unappreciated um, effect of vitamin C, I think is vitamin C's effect on mood. There's a lot of studies that have looked at this and uh, our friend, Dr. Anitra Carr yes. uh, published yes. some studies on this as well. And um, vitamin C helps you feel better. Mm -hmm. um, even if it doesn't necessarily do other things that it's purported to do, if nothing else, it'll help your, some of the hormones in your body, uh, do, do the things that they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Well, I want to segue with another question, uh, about vitamin C and cancer. And there's some people that ask if vitamin C can shield the tumors and harm the patients. Um, I think you do have to take that caution. Vitamin C is an antioxidant or in, in most cases, uh, not every case, but uh, if, so if you are taking vitamin C and the, and in large amounts. Um, by mouth. Yeah, by mouth, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, sorry, to clarify there. Mm -hmm. um, you, every cell in your body is going to be exposed to that vitamin C. It's going to accumulate that vitamin C. and uh, it will provide some antioxidant protection to every cell that accumulates it. Now, some cancer cells aren't very good at taking up vitamin C, uh, so that puts them at a disadvantage. Some cancer cells are also running on the edge in terms of redox balance. You know, they're they're really throttling their uh, metabolism, so they're kicking out free radicals all the time. Um, and so some of those free radicals will destroy any vitamin C that comes along, um, but it also can help protect the cancer cell a little bit. I don't see any great evidence that vitamin C is shielding tumors, but it is a concern, especially when you come with certain types of chemotherapy mm -hmm. uh, that are, are intended to sensitize cancer cells to say radiation or, or work on some sort of redox level. You do have to be careful there. And, and that's when you really should consult a, um, an oncologist before you're taking large amounts of vitamin C, because if it interacts with the chemotherapy that you're also taking, you do need to be careful. Um, but I don't think in other situations, it's it hasn't been shown to promote tumor growth. Correct. And certainly when you're doing intravenous uh, vitamin C, you're, you're wanting a, 
a different effect, a pro-oxidant effect of vitamin C. And so um, that's a whole nother that's can of worms. That's <laughs> yeah, right. that's a whole nother discussion. But but I, I think um, in general, you need to know what kind of chemotherapy, if you're on chemotherapy or if you're on radiation therapy, you need to know, uh, you know, what's going on before you start taking vitamin C. Mm-hmm. If there's no interactions between your therapy and the vitamin C or limited, then it's okay to take a small amount. You don't want the rest of your body to be depleted of vitamin C while you're undergoing these therapies. Right, right. And and uh, there are some studies out there uh, that have shown that vitamin C taken in conjunction, again, with certain types of chemotherapy helps mitigate some of the side effects of that chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So so don't shy away from it completely. Oh, you know, I could just keep on asking you questions. I mean, you've answered them so beautifully. It's almost a shame that on the Linus Pauling Institute webinar that I was on that you weren't answering the questions. <laughs> it's marvelous. I tried to defer them all to you. <laughs> oh, no, but you're doing such a fabulous job. I love it. And then I have one last personal question. I know that you're into beekeeping. I am. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about beekeeping. Oh, beekeeping is wonderful. Actually, I can't say that I'm a successful beekeeper yet because <laughs> I've had trouble keeping my hives alive. I mean, it's really hard to keep uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's really hard to keep your bees alive through the winter because it's so wet. Bees do not like cold and wet. Uh, beekeeping is is fascinating uh, from the point of view of just all these organisms, uh, are, you know, these bees functioning both as individual organisms, but also as a collective and understanding the interactions between bee, the, the workers and the queen and drones is, and, and just going in there and checking on what they're doing at any particular day. Just, I could spend hours just watching them. Oh, that's great. I have, I have a new colony of bees coming to my house this weekend. And so I'm hoping I will get them established and keep them alive throughout the winter. Um, you combining the beekeeping subject with the vitamin C topic, actually, I started giving my bees some vitamin C uh, because I read some papers out of Poland that showed that when they were supplementing bees with vitamin C, they were doing better and they had better resistance to viruses and, and other uh, toxins. Wow. And um, vitamin C can break down into oxalate, which we talked about briefly just a moment ago. And oxalate is a uh, approved, now approved treatment for bees to prevent mites. And mites are what are killing uh, bees off throughout the country. There's a, a mite called Varroa that is uh, devastating uh, commercial beekeeping uh, throughout the country. Mm. And so... I wondered if we gave our bees vitamin C that they would be bathed in in oxalate uh, on a continuous basis and help keep the mites away. I don't have any evidence for that yet. Maybe I'll run a clinical trial at some point. But <laughs> Get a bee informed consent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is so fascinating. You know, my granddaughter wants us to get some beehives for our farm. And I've been kind of dragging my feet, but very interested in it. But how do they overwinter in the cold Midwest? Oh, the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, I'm originally from Illinois, so I definitely know how cold it can get in the Midwest. (laughs) Uh, Bees are pretty good at surviving cold um, as long as they have fuel. 
uh, food. What they don't like is cold and wet. And so in the in the Midwest, your problem mostly is the wind because uh-huh. because anything that brings the cold into the hive will will push the bees out. But when the bees have enough honey stores, they will keep themselves warm kind of like a shivering type of reaction, a thermogenesis. Oh, okay. Um, they cluster around the queen and the brood nest throughout the winter, and they stay with her until the weather gets warm enough that they can break cluster and they can go forage for food again. Now, the problem is when they run out of food before the winter's over. And so oh. a lot of beekeepers will start supplementing their bees with food uh, sometimes dribbling food directly on the cluster of bees in the middle of the hive. In the extreme conditions, like up in Minnesota, for example, or uh, Canada, the commercial beekeepers have been taking to bringing their bees inside. Uh, so large cold storage facilities, which are cold enough to keep food refrigerated, but still warmer than it is outside, mm-hmm. um, ha- allow the bees to conserve their resources. I could always move them into the barn. Yeah, you could. You could. Uh, they they won't go flying until it's 50 degrees or, or higher out. So you don't necessarily have to worry about um, them. As long as the barn stays cool enough, they'll all stay in the hive and, and it'll reduce some of their stress. Well, I'll definitely have to uh, to to contact you if we decide to go with the bees. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I've been doing it for four years now, and uh, I keep learning from my mistakes. <laughs> hopefully, but it's it's just fascinating. It's fascinating to to learn about. So, well, thank you so much for joining me on the Art and Soul of Healing. Anytime, Jeannie. Uh, if you ever want me back again, just let me know. Yeah, this has really been fun. Thank you to Dr. Alexander Michaels for such a fun discussion and his clear and concise answers about the use of oral or intravenous vitamin C. And a special shout out to Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms. Go to anhusa.org and become a member today.